0: Good morning. It really is good to see you guys here and online, and several of you have already pointed out we're in this series called Calibrate, and it has a graph. We've been here for a couple of weeks, but you look at that a little differently now, don't you? On the left, it uh, looks all too familiar with some other images that you might be, have been looking at. Uh, over and over and over. So here we are again, it's like every Labor Day weekend, we're dealing with a hurricane. And at the same time, we're praying uh, for each other, we wanting to be community in the midst of this, but we're also not just wanting to hunker down uh, and, and kind of protect ourselves, we wanna be available to be used by Jesus and in, in this community, uh, in this culture. So keep praying we'll keep you posted online you can go to our website or social media we'll let you know the different closings but i encourage you keep an eye out for typically people can get real selfish in the midst of crisis and it's an opportunity for us to engage people to be fully alive in Jesus in the midst of the storm so as we're launching into this year we've been focused on this series called calibrate because There's a lot going on, and we get our to-do list going, and we're wanting to unpack, okay, you've got a role to play in this vision, so do you, and you, I could look at every one of you. We all have callings on our lives, and we're all coming together to exhibit who Jesus is as community. We, we, We best image him in community. So, as we're moving into this fall season, This fall ministry season, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, looking at our various ministries, a tendency is with the back-to-school stuff and the ministry stuff to just go, 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 go. And so instead, for a couple of months, we're stilling ourselves in the midst of tumultuous circumstances of to-do lists or now hurricanes. We're following the pattern that Luke teaches us about in Luke chapter 10, where Mary and Martha Two friends of Jesus, this might be the first time that they met. Their brother Lazarus is a guy that Jesus raised from the dead. They live in Bethany, which was a village just up the hill east of Jerusalem. Jesus was coming to their house, and Martha was getting real busy. In fact, Luke uses a word for her, Distracted. She was distracted by all the preparation. It was good stuff happening. You know what? We we're, we're needing to get ready for the hurricane. It's good stuff that we're doing and so forth. But it sometimes can distract us from what's really important. And Martha notices that Mary goes over and sits at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to what he's saying. And so Martha complains to Jesus. Jesus, don't you see I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. It's good stuff. Would you please tell Mary to help me? And Jesus surprises her with a, something, that, as I mentioned as I was praying, that's both gentle and, and firm. He says, hey, Martha, Mary has made a choice here. You're, and Jesus uses two other words, worried and upset about many things, but Mary has chosen what's better. So it's a choice we make. As Courtney was talking earlier about Blind Bartimaeus, and there's that choice. Will I reveal and own up to my desperation in the presence of Jesus or not? So we don't know what you're dealing with. We know what we're dealing with is a community of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. We know what we're dealing with is a community that's gearing up for a, a potential hurricane and praying it, it, it dissipates. But in the midst of all of that, we're wanting to calibrate, compasses long, long ago would be calibrated on ships by that ship going into a still harbor and realigning with true north. So this month, next month, we're going through this text in Luke chapter 10, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a very active place to be, it's not passive. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first discipline of calibrating, and it's the discipline of stillness, hitting the, the stop button on the treadmill. Then last week, we looked at a second discipline that happens at the feet of Jesus, and it's the discipline of submission. Mary was sitting at his feet. That was a statement of humility. It was a statement of receptivity. It was a statement of pliability. To say, Jesus, I'm going to make a choice right here to, to be still and let you shape me. So last week, we spent some time saying, am I this or am I this? What's this look like? We unpacked it some. This weekend, we're coming to to something that is one of the most tangible evidences, indicators, barometers, thermometers of whether I'm submitted or not. I can talk and say I'm submitted all I want, but to demonstrate this, when it comes to my time and my money and my abilities, am I pliable to say, Jesus, thank you that you've given me these things and I want to steward them or not? Submission leads to stewardship. Stewardship says, this isn't my own, my time, my money, my abilities. is not mine, it's yours. How do you want me to use it? How do you want to shape me? How do you want, me to, use, how do you want to use me in other people's lives? So as we were talking about how we could best address this, someone came to mind. He's part of us. His name is John Cortinas. To help us understand a little bit more this discipline of stewardship, particularly when it comes to money. So often we don't talk about it because it's been, uh, the the religious hucksters have abused texts and so forth. And as a result, it's robbed us for the freedom and the joy of what it looks like to come before Jesus with my time and my abilities and my finances and have this kind of posture instead of this. John and, and Megan are part of our body here. They have been uh, here for several years. They have three adorable little ones, and Jack, Anna, and Lydia. Lydia is, just turned, is turning two, had a birthday party yesterday. They have some chickens at their, their house, and so it was a farm animal theme, and you can tell that Lydia cannot stand holding her chicken but uh, so young families by the way this is what you can be aware of John John and Megan are part of our young families ministry that we're just starting up he'll mention a little bit about that to you uh, John's the CEO of generous giving which is a ministry here in town that is is devoted to teaching people the freedom of generosity It's supported by a foundation, therefore they're not going after commissions or anything like that. They just want to unpack what Jesus said. And he talked more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. Because money indicates in large fashion, do I really want to be pliable in his presence? John and a friend of his named Greg uh, 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 Greg Balmer were at Harvard Business School together. Both followers of Jesus started getting into the scripture about what Jesus says about money, and they ended up turning their Bible study into a book called God and Money. And John uses a lot of these principles in his teaching with generous giving here in town. And then this last year, the two of them wrote a new book called True Riches. And I asked them earlier in the summer, would you guys be willing to come and talk about the principles in this book that can be transformational. You want to know what being pliable in his presence looks like? It just occurred to me that the Play-Doh and the book match. Uh, unintentional, but the, uh, this is what pliability looks like. It's what humility, receptivity, pliability, and generosity look like. And so we asked John and Greg to come and, and teach us this, this weekend, uh, but there was a little problem with a... Um, a guy named Dorian, Do you know that, Do you think it was a girl? Yeah, Dorian is, 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 is a boy, he's a boy hurricane. So um, I think Dorian, goes. Is, it could be a boy's or a girl's name, but in the alphabet, I was corrected last night, because I've been thinking this was a girl, and then everybody let me know last night. No. They alternate. Between boy, girl, boy, girl, so this one's a boy. So this boy named Dorian interfered with Greg flying from Nashville down here. And so John needs to do the teaching just on his own. And uh, he's got this. You've heard from him before. And would you thank him for being here, John? Come on up here. And-
1: thank you, Pastor Matt. You're welcome. Well, good morning, Northland Church. It is so good to be here with you sharing God's Word today, and as Pastor Matt mentioned, I wanted to, before I jump in, just give a quick shout out to this Young Families Ministry here at Northland that is launching next weekend, and we're defining young families as those with children from all the way from birth, all the way up through elementary school, and if you're a parent of young children, there's a few things happening in this Young Families Ministry. One of them is going to be called Double Church, and for Double Church, you would come to the 9 a.m. service a little bit earlier. There's childcare available if you're signed up for it and registered ahead of time. And after the 9 a.m. you would, uh, your kids would still have childcare available. You would make your way over to the rink. And uh, for an hour, there would be an opportunity after the service to fellowship with other parents of children and grow in relationship. So I don't know if you've had this experience, but you know, you're dropping your kids off and you see, some parents that you've seen dropping their kids off, and you kinda, it's like, oh, I think I recognize them, kinda wave, and they wave back, and it's like, hi. Uh, but you don't really know each other. And this is an opportunity to say, let's actually build community, learn each other's stories, and grow together in Christ. I'm so excited we're creating that space here at Northland. Megan and I will be there next week. Would love to see you there. So, we're gonna start today in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Context for this passage is that King David is nearing the end of his life, the great king of Israel, there's no temple constructed yet, and David is doing a, he's giving a gift, and then he's asking the people to give so they can build the temple of God. This is out of their devotion to God, they want to create a building that would be his dwelling place, that would be a representation of their devotion to the Lord. And this is an example of a beautifully given gift and a posture of generosity. And so we're gonna dive into this text this morning. First Chronicles 29, 3 through 8 to start. David says, moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen. Gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. And then he asks everyone around, he says, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. So then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. So we read this and we go, okay, this is pretty cool, there was a gold and silver offering. And really we wanted to anchor on this passage this morning uh, because today will be the first annual Northland gold and silver offering and we're going to bring all of our jewelry to the front like my 10-karat gold Aggie ring and make a pile right here for the church budget. Um, just kidding, of course, you can, some, if it's your first time here you're like, what kind of a place did I show up to? Um, there is no gold and silver offering at Northland. But it's interesting, we, we read this, we go, talents, how much is a talent? Turns out a talent is a heavy unit of weight, typically 75 pounds, but depending on the region, depending on the timing or the translation, it could be 40 to 100 pounds. And so we go, well, is this more or less than what we might have in this room? If we got all of our rings and bracelets and necklaces together, would it you know, melt down to the size of a basketball? Would it fill a five-gallon bucket? Who knows, right? Uh, and so being the nerd that I am, I have a couple of engineering degrees and I was reading this passage, Um, I actually got a little bit distracted by this and I thought, okay, maybe there's even a chemistry teacher in the room and you wanna get the Bible into your classroom, here's how you can do it. You would write an exam question something like this. Go, Susie has a swimming pool with an average depth of 1.5 meters, a width of three meters and a length of nine meters. If all the silver and gold from 1 Chronicles 29 were melted down, would the total volume of silver and gold overflow the swimming pool? Part B, bonus question. What is the value in today's dollars of all the gold and silver? So you gotta know the density of gold and silver. You gotta know the current market price. You gotta know how to convert units. It's called stoichiometry. You can nerd out on this stuff. Good stuff, right? And so uh, very responsibly as I began my sermon prep, this is what the first several minutes of my sermon prep looked like. Um, because I got way too into this and wanted to find out what is this worth, right? And so. Well, the answer to the exam question actually is yes, this is 40 cubic meters of gold and silver and it would overflow your typical swimming pool if you melted it all down. That's a lot of gold and silver. And then part B, this is worth $7.9 billion at today's market value. Not million, billion dollars. So we we read this passage, it's easy to skip over the units because we don't understand them, but that was shocking to me to say, You know, we're talking about not just a good Sunday offering, we're talking about the wealth of a nation. This is King David's wealth acquired through being king for many years. This is the wealth of the nation all put together to build a house to display the glory of God for the people of Israel and the nations around. So that's the context, a huge, huge gift, by the way, I love worshiping in this beautiful facility we have at Northland Church, this amazing auditorium, the children's wings, the rink next door, the the acreage with parking. You could build, for the price of this offering, you could build hundreds of Northland churches. So again, the amount of money we're talking about is massive. So with that in mind, we continue forward and see what David says and how the people react. Continuing in verse nine. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, God our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And pause right there for a minute and say, David is saying, God, it's in your hand to make people great. And David remembers being a shepherd boy. And unexpectedly, the prophet Samuel comes and anoints him with oil as the future king of Israel. So David knows I may have been a great king in this nation, but God took me from shepherd boy to king. And God is the one who puts people in positions of authority. So do you have authority? Are you a supervisor or a manager over employees? Are you a parent with authority over children? Are you someone who has friends or family with whom you carry influence? And if you are, this passage, David is saying, God has given that to you as a stewardship to manage for his glory and for the good of those who have been entrusted to you in some way. He continues, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you." So I love this scripture. I love the posture of David's heart. He says, God, it's all yours and we're so happy that we get to give back to you. And I have a question. Uh, You know, this scripture is here and it's here to teach us a lesson. So why is this God-breathed portion of scripture here for our edification? What is the lesson? Is the lesson that you can do some interesting math calculations and conversions and find out, wow, this is a lot of money? I think that's interesting, but I would say the primary lesson is actually the posture of the heart that David shows us and the people of Israel had as they gave and they rejoiced in the Lord. And what we can draw from that is that God is not impressed financially, He's not impressed with your success, but He embraces your surrender. He's not impressed with your success, how much you can earn, how much you can give, how many zeros are there. No, he's waiting for your surrender. So you can be a debt-free multimillionaire, and maybe you give $25,000 a year to Northland, a huge giver, and and you're giving to all these other ministries nationally and internationally, and yet God says, you know what, you've never surrendered. And I wanna walk in relationship and partnership with you as it comes to your money, in that intimate fellowship, and you're just doing this out of guilt, or duty, or obligation, or routine. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe you're struggling with poverty and you're saying, I don't even know how I'm going to pay my bills this month. And God says, you know what, you haven't surrendered either. And what I'm looking for from you is the opportunity to walk hand in hand in fellowship with you, to receive what you have with gratitude, even if it's limited, and partner with me in generosity. And that can grow our relationship. So our plan this morning is for Greg to be here. And uh, actually, you know, we were on the phone. This was even Saturday morning. We didn't quite know what was going to happen. And we were on the phone with Greg, and it was like, are we going to risk the flight in? Because he could get stranded in Orlando with his family and his job. And and then it turns out his flight got canceled. And so Southwest Airlines made the decision that Greg could not be here uh, in response to the hurricane. We said, well, OK, not much we can do about that. But if Greg were here, he would have shared part of his story with you. Went to Indiana University. Went to work for a consulting firm called McKinsey, a very prestigious firm. Went to work in private equity, very high, high-flying high finance type of career, Harvard Business School, and has joined a healthcare company. And he now works for this company valued at over a billion dollars and is one of the top executives there as a young man in his 30s. Has a beautiful family with his wife, Allison. They have two kids biologically and one child through the grace of adoption, so family of five living simply and giving generously all for the glory of God. And if Greg were here, he would have unpacked his journey and how it relates to these four transformations that are present that we talk about in the True Riches book. And we're gonna put those up on the screen here in terms of those four transformations. And these are what God wants to do for us as we relate to our money. To move us from pride to gratitude, which is what we see in King David, right? This posture that says, God, it all comes from you. From coveting to contentment, from anxiety to trust, and from indifference to love. And in all of these, there's a place where we start in our sinful nature and how we relate with money, and there's a transformation that God wants to make in our heart to center us on the gospel. We all start in a place of pride, which says, you know what, I've worked hard for this, I earned it, and I deserve what I have. And then coveting, which sounds like, you know, I see what other people have in terms of experiences and possessions, I see it on social media, and I wanna get those things for myself because I know if I got a little bit more, I would be happy or satisfied. And then anxiety, the voice of anxiety says, I don't know what the future holds, and I know that it depends on me. I don't know how I'm gonna pay my bills, or I don't know how I'm gonna have enough for retirement, I don't know what will happen in the stock market with an inverted yield curve, or a hurricane on the way, or what have you, I'm wrapped up in anxiety. And finally, indifference, which says, you know what, I know there's need in the world, but I've got a- enough to worry about for myself, and I just really can't be bothered. But the transformation that God wants to make is to move us on each of these continuums where pride becomes gratitude. We say, God, everything I have and all that I am is a gift from you that you've graciously provided, and I thank you for it. My coveting becomes contentment, and I say, God, my lifestyle or my circumstances may not be what I want. It may, they may stink but you know what, I'm rooted in Christ and my happiness is not dependent on my circumstances. I'm content in you, Lord. My anxiety becomes trust and I say, God, I'm working a plan, I'm saving, I'm doing what I can do, but I trust you to meet me in the middle as my provider and Lord, I believe that you've given me eternal security and are also my provider here and now on this earth. And from indifference to love, which is when the gospel of God's grace wells up in us and through love for the world, we say, Lord, I wanna partner with you to serve the poor, to save the lost, and to strengthen believers with the gospel in places like Northland Church, where we're partnered here today. So God did this for Israel. We can see how he did it in King David, moving them along these continuums. And I believe that he wants to do it for us here today, even with the storm potentially headed our way. You know, you could actually think Okay, well, this sermon's been planned for a while, and and we're talking about money and generosity, and there's a hurricane about to hit. What terrible timing. Like, does that make any sense to talk about this topic today? And we were thinking about it, and we realized, you know, this is actually perfect. This is a beautiful opportunity to recognize that generosity in the Christian faith does not come from our abundance and our comfort and our security. It comes rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done. I want to read a little passage where Paul talks about this. We're gonna go forward into the New Testament. Second Corinthians eight verses one and two, which is generosity happening in the midst of a storm. Paul writes, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And here's the circumstance. For in a severe test of affliction, sounds kind of like a hurricane, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And this is an interesting sentence, like I read this sentence and my brain doesn't know what to do with it. And I think Paul wrote it that way on purpose because it's, it's jarring. We read about what's going on and we say, okay, a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, what do those lead to? That leads us to maybe despair, maybe to anger or bitterness in our circumstances, maybe to, to being closed off to selfishness. And yet, by the grace of God, It says they had an abundance of joy and an overflow of generosity which can only be explained by the grace of Jesus Christ. So generosity is when the great happiness of the gospel overflows in the midst of imperfect circumstances. So we live these lives of ours and we don't know what tomorrow holds. In fact you and I don't know if we will wake up tomorrow. Every day is a gift and there's always uncertainty and the fact that a hurricane is rolling in makes us a little bit more aware of that than normal and we're preparing for the storm, we're getting ready. And you know, uh, the rain forecast has shifted a little bit and I'm thankful for that here in central Florida. But a few days ago, they were saying we could get a foot or two of rain. And my wife Megan and I have been in our home for just about a year and a half and we haven't had a hurricane yet. And I realized, you know, there's this creek about 100 yards behind our house and with a foot or two of rain, that thing could overflow. And if it overflows, if we got three or four feet of water rise, that water could come into our house and as you probably know, regular homeowner's insurance doesn't cover floods and you gotta have flood insurance, and turns out we don't. Uh, and I looked, can you get a policy immediately? No, you can't, I have to wait 30 days. Um, darn it, couldn't get flood insurance. And so then I found these calculators online and I realized if the water came into our house, it could do like $70,000 of damage. And I was sitting there for about 10 minutes worried about this, sitting in that anxiety. And then I felt the Lord come and speak to me and say, John, you know what? If you lost $70,000 in home damage due to flood, that would be the worst financial day of your life. That's true. But guess what? Would you still be my child who has been invited into a secure eternity in heaven forever? Yes, I would. Would you and your family in all likelihood still be together, still be, yes, we would. And I could count my blessings even on that day, potentially one of the worst days of my life in terms of my material possessions. And we can say, you know what? There's a storm coming. We don't know what it will do but we have a secure anchor in Christ that we can hold on to, even in the midst of the storm. So when our circumstances are bad, God is still good. And there's this question, will those bad circumstances drive us out into the darkness away from God? Or will they be an opportunity that we have to turn to Him and walk in an ever increasing fellowship? The prophet Habakkuk had to answer this question. He knew that uh, he could see some bad circumstances coming for Israel, This is a short prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. You could go read it today. And what Habakkuk says, he goes to God and he basically says, Lord, why are you doing this or why are you allowing this to happen? If I was running the world, I would sure do things differently. And it goes back and forth for three chapters, wrestling with these questions that we so often ask God in difficult and uncertain circumstances. And that whole book hinges on the last few verses where in the midst of that uncertainty, Habakkuk does run to the Lord instead of running away and this is how he concludes his book. Habakkuk 3 verses 17 through 19. He said, "Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, if the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength." And I think if Habakkuk had been writing today in central Florida, He might have written that a little bit differently. He might have said something like, even when the gas stations have no gas and there's no food on the grocery store shelves, if the propane is sold out like I found out a couple days ago, electric power goes down, I have no internet, my shingles are blowing off my roof, and I don't know when the storm will stop. Even then, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. So we know we all face circumstantial uncertainty. It comes in the form of a hurricane, it comes in all kinds of different forms in our lives, and the point is that circumstantial uncertainty is not an excuse to stop being formed into the image of Christ. When we might say, Lord, I've got a crisis right now. I've got to get through this. I can't pay attention to my walk with you, God. I've got to just press on through this, and then I can can kind of recalibrate at the end of the storm. And we say, no, the crisis is the crucible of growth. Our circumstantial uncertainty is the vehicle for spiritual formation. When we give it over to God and say, God, I want to walk with you through the storm. So this is true for us. This was true for King David, this was true for the Macedonian church in their extreme affliction and poverty, somehow they had gratitude, contentment, trust and love that overflowed in generosity. And we have to ask the question, if that can be true for the Macedonians and if it is to be true for us, what is the power source for generosity? Where does generosity come from? Does it come from a sense of guilt that I have money so i got to give because the church has a budget I need to do, I need to help them make budget? Does it come from a sense of obligation or duty or it's the right thing to do, I've got to check this box of obedience? It doesn't come from that. If it does, it won't last. Jesus has to be the center and the fuel of our generosity. As believers who confess the name of Jesus Christ, we know the truth of these statements. If you heard Pastor Reggie's sermon several weeks ago, we center on Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the great high priest who helps us approach the Father. He's the suffering servant who bore our iniquities and took away our shame. Jesus came down from a perfect existence in heaven to this broken earth and lived a sinless life and then gave his life and died so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And if we have been the recipients of his great grace in that way and we've been called into new life, it is our natural response to say, I wanna be like Jesus, I wanna be a giver because he is a giver. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 13, that God is shaping us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And as the Father wants us to resemble our older brother, spiritually Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn into new life, if we're going to resemble him, then we are going to be generous like him. And in fact, I don't think we can be spiritually formed or reach spiritual maturity aside from generosity of our time and our talents, yes, but also our treasure. Wherever we are, God's not moved by our success. It doesn't mean you have to give a thousand dollar gift or some amount of a gift. No, it's the posture of your heart surrendered to him in generosity. So in this free response to the grace and goodness of God, we offer ourselves up to him and say, Lord, I wanna meet you in this way. One of the greatest benefits of working for Generous Giving is I get to hear amazing stories of families who have embraced this mindset and are living this out in a compelling way in their lives. And I heard from a a family the other day, just a couple of months ago, and they said, you know what, if you were to meet us, you would would see that we're a healthy and happy family, and we praise God for that, three healthy children, married couple, but what you wouldn't see is the hidden pain of having walked through the, the pain of miscarriage 13 different times. And they said, you know, financially, we're actually in a great place. We just paid off our mortgage. We're doing well financially. Got the mortgage knocked out. We're in our 30s raising our kids. And and the question is, what do we do with this newfound cash flow every month? There's no mortgage payment. What are we going to do? We're free. And they were thinking, we're going to maybe take some more luxurious vacations than we've taken before. We could even buy a vacation home. And as they were going through the process of saying, what do we do with these new resources, they began to meet with God. And God began to stir something in them and they felt, you know what, this could be an opportunity to step into God's kingdom in a brand new way. And they ended up deciding, as they entered into prayer and a season of asking God, he gave them a vision. And they said, our vision is actually now to fully fund 13 adoptions in our church community to represent a healing from the pain that we've experienced and using our financial resources to invest in the kingdom of God. This is a direct quote that they sent to me. They said, we've experienced the sorrow of miscarriage, but we trust that God not only works all things for the good of those who love him, but he is redeeming all things. We see helping families adopt the orphans among us as part of his redemptive process. I thought, what a beautiful picture of the gospel at work and what a beautiful picture of what generosity is all about. They were living in gratitude and saying, God, everything we've received, even in our pain, you've given us so many great gifts. They were living in contentment to say, God, our lifestyle is so blessed. We don't need to ramp it up with this extra money. We're secure in you. They were living in trust, saying we could put this extra couple thousand a month into our retirement accounts, but you know what? We've got a different vision for how we want to do it. And finally, they were living in love. To say, God, we have been blessed by you and we want to use our financial resources to partner for the fulfillment of your kingdom on this earth for the orphans among us. And so my question to you this morning is, how is God stirring your heart? Have you received the great grace of the gospel and been invited into the family of God? And if so, would you ask the Lord how he wants to partner, how he wants you to partner with him in generosity? Again, for the fulfillment of his kingdom, he invites you to play on his team in redeeming and healing this world. So, thanks so much for the opportunity to share. I'm going to invite Pastor Matt to come up and close us out, and we'll sing one more song together.
0: So, the feet of Jesus, sitting at his feet. Being still, being submissive, and responding with surrender that will manifest itself as, with a sense of stewardship. So, right there at the feet of Jesus, those four transformations pride becomes gratitude, coveting is transformed in contentment, anxiety. becomes trust, and indifference becomes love. My natural bent, in fact, I wake up every morning, it's like the Play-Doh of my heart has been out because I get crusty, and I, you have to it's — a, it's a matter of disciplining ourselves and coming to his feet and saying, in humility and receptivity, in pliability and generosity what do you have for me? And it's not saying, I'm going to wait until the hurricane's over because we've all got hurricanes coming along here and there. I'm going to wait till this is over, that's over. Jesus pointed out to Martha very lovingly, but very firmly. He said, Martha, you are distracted. You're worried. You're upset. Instead of changing the circumstances, he says, in the midst of those circumstances, sit at my feet. That's what Mary's doing. And it's the better choice. So before we go, We're gonna do just that. You can remain seated. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come out and imagine you're sitting at his feet or you can stand, you can kneel, have whatever posture for this one song and let's acknowledge that he's worthy of his name. Biblically speaking, what that means is all that Jesus' name, who he is, what he does, that we attribute to him in scripture is deserved because of who he is. This is not something I have to drum up It's simply a response. When I have this posture before him, I'm not actually embracing who he really is. This is. So let me pray. And if you're going to stand, you can stand now. If you're going to kneel, kneel now. If you're going to remain seated again, let the posture physically fuel the posture of your heart right now as we worship Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you've called us to be here right now, even with a hurricane looming. And for some of us, it's not just the hurricane in the Atlantic that we're concerned about, it's the hurricane in our heart. Would you give us the courage to not be distracted or worried or upset, as Luke tells us, and Jesus pointed out with Martha, may we sit at your feet. Be still, be submissive, and surrender. It's not our stuff we're surrendering. It's not our time we're surrendering. It's not our our abilities. They're all yours. We're simply acknowledging that we're stewards. So may you lift our eyes from our circumstances to you right now. For these next four minutes before we go out into our, our routines, calibrate us at your feet, to look at your worth, and then to live our lives and respond.